Hello, and thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast, now available on almost any platform where podcasts can be found. What you'll most often find here is our Sunday service sermon audio, but we'll also post bits and pieces of special services, events, and other things as they pertain to the life of the church. If you'd like to know more about what's happening here at Redeemer, you can visit us online at www.redeemermn.org or join us live Sunday at 10.30 a.m. on YouTube or Facebook. Just search for Redeemer MN or Redeemer Lutheran Church and locate the blue droplet icon. We're overjoyed at this opportunity to minister to you and to walk beside you as you begin to experience what it means to be the church. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, church. Boy, that was lame. Good morning, church. Thank you. It is wonderful to be with you. I just wanted to let you know that it felt uh, amazing last week, just the outpouring of love and support that I felt last week being up here for the first time in a number of months, and I just so appreciate you. Uh, Last week, we started a series called Follow Me, not me, but Paul saying that, <laughs> looking at how the Apostle Paul got to the place in his life where he could say, follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And um, last week I began, or last fall I began a sabbatical and I began with an 18-day journey, a pilgrimage we called it, through Turkey and Greece, following in the footsteps of Paul's three missionary journeys. And that's the basis for this series. And as I said last week, Paul's first missionary journey really wasn't Paul's. Um, When we first met Paul in the Bible, he is called Saul. He's a zealous persecutor of those who uh, follow Jesus. He hunted them down. He brought them before Jewish officials. He wanted to have them charged as a heretic and killed. When we first meet Paul, he's at the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen, and he's given his approval. And then, as you know, Saul has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he goes from persecuting Christians to becoming one of them. (laughs) And... This new Jesus follower, Paul, was so zealous to share the good news, but he did it in his own wisdom and his own strength, and the result was lots of preaching, but very little fruit when it came to change lives and making disciples. The response from the people that he spoke to wanted to kill him. See, on the road to Damascus, the truth of Jesus was revealed to Saul, but he hadn't yet been discipled into the way of Jesus. So the disciples send Paul home. And when you read the story in Acts, two chapters later, we find out he's invited to Antioch by Barnabas. And two chapters, I said last week, feels like a few weeks, maybe a month. And we come to find out that his stay at home was more than 10 years. History says that he was rejected by his family, divorced by his wife, excommunicated from the synagogue, beaten with 39 lashes, and was living alone in a cave outside of Tarsus. Paul was a broken man. And that's when Barnabas comes and reaches out to him and invites him on this first missionary journey to Antioch. And I challenged you last week to become an encourager like Barnabas because your words can change someone's life. And so I challenge you to be a a prayerful, a positive, a persistent encourager. And my action step was to each day pray, God, who can I encourage today? And if you did that, let me know how that went. If you didn't, start today. Antioch was the first example of this church that Jesus wanted to plant. It was the church that Jesus talked about. It was Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, uneducated and highly educated, different races, different backgrounds, and they all came together to form this new Jesus community. 
And in the footsteps of Paul pilgrimage, we began in the city of Antioch. There's a modern city there now called Antakya. But up on the hillside, there's remnants of the old city of Antioch. And here's a picture of that first church carved out of the hillside. We were able to see that. Obviously, it didn't have that cement courtyard back in the day, but it's very modest and pretty spectacular to be there. To know that Paul and Barnabas spent over a year there meeting with and discipling that first Jesus community. That oikos, as they called it. It's where Paul learned how to grow to become like Jesus. He was a part of this community, this family, where they loved each other and they challenged each other and they shared their possessions with each other and they helped each other become like Christ. So much so that that term Christians, which means little Christ, was first coined there in Antioch. That first church family, amazing. And families can be amazing, can't they? A place to, to be loved and to love. A place to be nurtured, a place to grow, a place to belong. I'm so grateful for my wonderful family. I mentioned last week that my family's gonna expand. My daughter is going to give birth to grandchild number one. Due date was last Tuesday. <laughs> Came to work this morning, still waiting. <laughs> Did get a text though that said, Please pray, contractions started in the night. They're not close enough together yet to go to the hospital, but things are happening. So join me in praying for that. I have a family that's getting larger. Not only do I have a daughter, I have a wonderful son that I like to tease, but I'm about to get married. Uh, first time in eight years. And I'll have some bonus kids that are uh, uh, cool as well. And I'm blessed because in 15 days, uh, a spouse that helps me love God and love others is gonna be a part of my life. I am so blessed. I'll tell this story real quick. When I, before I asked for Heather's hand in marriage, I asked for not the kids' permission, but their blessing. So I met with each of them. Uh, you know, Colby jumped up and down for joy. Cadence cried, wanted to see the ring. Hannah got all emotional. Talked to my son, Micah. Hey, Micah, I'm thinking about getting married. Okay. <laughs> um... What would you think about that? That's cool. Um, anything else you'd like to say? Uh, it's about time. <laughs> Check for his pulse, that's him. Families can be so amazing, right? Families can also be so hard. They can be filled with misunderstandings, quarrels, unmet expectations, unresolved conflict, all those things which can just break them apart. Today we're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey where he traveled to places like Tarsus and Lystra and Iconium and Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth. I was able to visit those places. But we're going to camp on Corinth. Focus on that. Paul arrived in Corinth in AD 49. It was winter and he began sharing this new life in Christ's good news. And people came to faith, and this new church and this new family was planted. And he spent a year and a half nurturing this new community. Not so that they would just believe in the truth of Jesus, but follow the way of Jesus. How to love each other. How to grow together and become like him by sharpening each other, challenging each other. But a year and a half later, Paul got some news that things in Corinth weren't so well. <laughs> this new church was having, and this new family was having new problems, and they were having lots of them. Let me just give you a little context. 
Corinth was this important commercial city in Greece. It was a port. And it was on the small sliver of land in between two seas, the Aegean and the Ionian Sea. And goods were brought there by ship and they were transported sometimes just to the city and sometimes they were literally unloaded from one ship, transported across the land and brought onto another ship so they could continue their journey. Years later, they dug a canal. We were able to kind of see it. I think I have a pic of it right here. Don't worry, this isn't going to be like grandma's trip to Africa and slides. I just have a couple for you. But being an important port city, all kinds of people moved to Corinth and they brought with them all kinds of their own ideas and religious beliefs. It was a mixture, Corinth was, of Greek and Roman and Oriental beliefs. And so when Paul planted this new church family, this new religion called Christianity, the, the, the teachings of Christ were very different from that of what they knew about religion. Corinth was the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual love and pleasure. And so I was able to walk up and hike up to the Acropolis and see the ruins of this temple. Uh, and in its heyday, this temple of Aphrodite, they had a thousand temple prostitutes that served it. I mean, it's quite opposite of what Jesus taught. Corinth was known for its excessive moral decay. So much so that even in the morally corrupt Roman Empire, the word Corinthian was used to describe somebody who was excessively immoral. They were called Corinthian. Or you're like the Corinthians. It was like the sin city of that time. The city was not only culturally and religiously diverse, it was incredibly economically diverse. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, when he talks about this new family, he said, not many were influential and not many were of noble birth which is Paul's way of saying a number of people who had come to faith were impoverished. But then you had the shipping trade, which made people wealthy. And then there were also nobles that came to faith. I mean, he, he talked about Erastus, who was the city treasurer and officer of the in charge of public works, which made him like second in charge of the whole city. And there was a chasm between these groups economically. They, they didn't associate with one another. And now this different... Factions were brought together into this new family. And so there was not a surprise that they were having new problems. And so Paul got this word that there was strife and division that was seriously threatening this young church. They'd become spiritually arrogant and it led to problems such as partisanship and different followers were factionalizing behind different leaders. And there were problems with sexual misconduct like incest and prostitution and divorce. And there was chaos in worship that included the misuse of spiritual gifts and they were having problems with communion. You see, when they observed the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians were still guilty of the social discrimination they knew. I mean, banquets were segregated by wealth. The more esteemed dined and drank in what was called a triclinium, triclinium, where they would recline and they would have this amazing food and this expensive wine and lesser guests ate poor food and lots less of it and cheap wine. And that's why Paul, when he addresses them in first Corinthians, he says this, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's supper for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So the bottom line was, is this church that was young was a mess, divided on many fronts. And they had so many problems, but they kind of stemmed from one central problem, and that was this. 
the people who came to faith in Jesus never detached themselves from the world they lived in. Not that they were to be away from it, but they were to have different ways about them. They were bringing kind of the world into the church, and anytime you do that, you bring the world's problems too. And as you read 1 Corinthians, you soon recognize that some of the problems they were experiencing aren't too different than what the church experiences today. When we listen to lots of different voices from our world and our culture and our politics, and we follow those examples, it pulls us in different directions as a spiritual family. And yet when we model our lives after Jesus and listen to his voice, and follow his example, it brings us the spirit of unity. And so for today, we're just going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at some of the challenges that they faced and how can we avoid those pitfalls, become the best Jesus family that we can be. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10 these words. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united with the same mind and the same judgment. Paul's so concerned about this rampant division that his call is for unity, a powerful appeal for unity. And he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That simple phrase, Paul is saying that our relationship to Christ is what unifies us as a church. There's no other name big enough or great enough or glorious enough or powerful enough to bring us all together. Despite our diversity of viewpoints, our backgrounds, our status in life, the only name that unifies us is that of Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ, we're unified because we have his life in us. And Paul calls the church in Corinth, just like he calls us today, back to that fundamental truth. And then Paul describes the nature of unity when he says this, that you be united with the same mind and the same judgment. Let me put you at ease. (laughs) Paul is not saying that everybody has to think alike when he says same mind. I mean, let's be honest. It would be great if you all thought like me. But unfortunately, there's some stubborn ones among you. I'm just joking. Not all of you think like I do. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's a good thing. Not everybody has to think alike. So when Paul says, have the same mind, what is he saying? Well, let's look at what Paul writes to the same uh, different church in Philippi, where he writes these words in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you. Again, this is the mind of Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying pretty clearly the mind of Christ is the willingness to give up rights and personal privileges, take the form of a, of a humble servant, empty oneself and become humble. Paul says the basis for unity in the church is the attitude of selflessness. That is the mind of Christ. Because when everybody decides to put Christ first and is willing to suffer loss so that the kingdom might be advanced, it's what brings humility, it's what brings unity to the church. And anytime there's two different voices, you're going to have difference of opinions, right? I did a marriage, prepare, a marriage seminar Friday night and Saturday, myself and everybody else half my age. And uh, it was a blast. 
But it was also, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled to be getting married, but I also realized we're two different people. <laughs> we have different personalities. And the way we have unity is just when we look at Christ. Paul goes on in verse 2, in 12, sorry, to describe what these divisions look like. He says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. The church was breaking into different factions for various reasons. Some said, well, I follow Paul. I mean, after all, he started this church, right? Another say, well, I follow Apollos. And what we learned from Acts is Apollos was this great orator, this wonderful preacher. He was very warm and eloquent, and so some followed him. Others say, well, I don't know about Paul or Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is Peter. I mean, after all, he's one of the first disciples Jesus called. And then others, would, this fourth group said, well, we don't know about all those guys. Us, <laughs> we follow Jesus himself. You can almost kind of feel their self-righteous smugness. And the reality was is that Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they'd all preach the gospel. They'd all help people understand that in order to have a future and a new life, it comes, an eternal life, it comes with accepting what Jesus has done. But these factions, it says, led to quarrels and arguments. Thinking of Redeemer as a church and thinking of the church as a whole, do we have factions in the church today? Do people get attached to a certain service or certain style and think that every other one is second rate? Do people gather around a certain preacher or leader and think that everybody else isn't as good? Do people gather around a certain denomination and think that all others are subpar? Is there a certain doctrine or spiritual belief about how baptism should be performed or communion should be taken or how end times theology we have to have? Or what translation of the Bible is the anointed one? And everybody who thinks differently from you is wrong. Let me make, bring it a little closer to home. Do, do pe- church members disagree about things in our culture, like politics and pandemics? Ouch. I've talked to more people who are like, I don't talk to any, them anymore because they have a different viewpoint. I'm like, seriously? Paul challenges their thinking in verse 13 when he says, is Christ divided In other words, no one person, no one theology, no one preacher, no one church has this total and complete comprehensive view of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, when you look at our own Bible, we have four Gospels. Because not even the disciples who were with Jesus at the time were capable of giving us a complete view. The second thing Paul says is, was was Paul crucified for you? It's easy to see at times that certain leaders or certain humans get lifted up, put on a pedestal. They get viewed as something more than just a, a normal human. And don't get me wrong, it's good to have people to emulate, to look up to, to mentor you. But be careful how you view them, because Paul squashes that by saying, was Paul crucified for you? There has never been or ever will be any leader who can help us be forgiven other than Jesus Christ, not one. There's not a single leader who can help heal a broken heart or supply adequacy to somebody who feels worthless other than Christ himself. There's not a single leader who can open the heart and reveal the glory and majesty of God. There is one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on and says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
And he says, well, I did actually baptize a few of you, but not many, and I'm glad I didn't. Because again, they were boasting over who baptized them like this kind of special badge of honor. Oh, I got baptized by Paul, or well, Paul baptized, by, baptized me, or Peter, when he came through time, I mean, after all, when he walked on water, he baptized me. And Paul said, not only are these divisions causing disunity, he said, worse than that, he said, you're giving an awful and inaccurate view to the person of Jesus Christ before a watching world. So in verse 17, Paul introduces his cure. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You want to bring unity? (laughs) You go back to the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've all been given for freedom and new life because of that, because of what Christ accomplished. That's what unites us. Like the old saying, the foot is level, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When people get off their self-righteous little status symbols and they get back to the person of Jesus Christ and his cross, divisions disappear. There is no other cure. The cross of Christ cuts across all human value systems. It wipes out all petty distinctions that people like to make. It strips away all of our illusions and humbles all those who want to be prideful before him. It's the radical force like anything, like not anything else in the world. I mean, if it had been up to us and God came to us and said, I'd like you to plan a program for how we're going to redeem the world. Uh, none of us would have come up with the cross. I mean, the cross was thought to be the place of ultimate humility and defeat, and Jesus turns it into the place of ultimate victory and unity. And that's why Paul calls us back to it. I mean, when you look at just our church right here, we have many differences. We have old and young. People from different backgrounds, people in different economic situations, people with different experiences, people who think differently. I just want to close with a very important question because I think this question influences not only how you live, but how we act. Do you see our differences as a blessing or a problem? The church in Corinth saw their differences as a problem and it almost blew them apart. They were using their differences to exclude or look down on or even demonize those different from them. Certainly not the approach of Jesus. I mean, think for a moment who Jesus hung out with. (laughs) Pharisees and tax collectors, adulterers, people with diseases who were outcasts, Jews, Gentiles, women and children. The religious, religious elite looked down on Jesus because he was not seeing the differences as a problem. The reason that he spent so much time with different people is so that they could experience the good news in their context. They could have the opportunity to join his kingdom So how are you responding? When you see differences, are you fighting them? Are you ignoring them? How are you responding to people in our church that are different from you? How do you respond from people outside our church that are different than you? Are you pleased to see people connect with God who are different than you? People with different backgrounds and experiences? God's encouragement is not that we demand that our differences be accepted but rather we accept others if they are different and don't let our differences divide us. 
That's why Paul writes again to the church in Philippi, chapter two, verse one and three, one through three, he says this, if you have any encouragement, any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being what? Like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. The reality is we need to see our, difference, see our differences as a blessing. If we're going to live out calls, Paul, or God's call to us to be a disciple of the nations. I remember years ago, I went on to a missions conference. Over 30 years ago, I still remember this. There's a speaker by the name of George Otis Jr., and he was speaking, this is 30 years ago, about this post-denominational church that was coming. And his comment was interesting. He said, I look at the different denominations and I see them as different facets of Christ's character. He said, I look at the Lutherans and I sit there and think, yeah, God's word is powerful. It changes lives. Jesus is the central figure of God's word and that's how we become saved. And then the Baptists say, yeah, but you got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Pentecostals then say, yeah, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that that all happens. And he literally talked about it like it was a diamond with its different facets. And how when we learn from those differences, how we get a more complete picture of the brilliance of God. Still sticks with me 30 years later. And so the reality is we need to see our differences as a blessing if we're going to live out God's call for us to make disciples of all nations. Yes, I know I repeated that. The focus of the cross is where the power of God lies. Look at what Paul says in the very next verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is. So my challenge to each of you as you leave this place is commit to be a people of unity. Commit to being accepting of those that think differently than you. Bring it back to the central focus of Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. Look at differences as an opportunity, as a blessing, not as a problem. Because that's my prayer for us as a church. That our differences would be blessed and used by God for his glory. That Christ would shine through us in such an amazing way that many, many more would come to know of his great love and power. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that right now in our world there are just so many things that divide us. And it's so easy to choose sides and it's so easy to get frustrated and concerned about people that think differently than you about so many things. Lord, I see relationships fractured over so many different things. And God, your word is pretty clear. (laughs) The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Help us to Follow the example of Jesus Christ to empty ourselves, to walk in that humility, to see others as better than ourselves. 
to connect up with those that are different than us so that they too might come to know of that amazing power that takes place when we meet Jesus on the cross. <laughs> That's what we're about, Lord. Help us to do that more and more. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much once again for listening to our podcast. If you experienced something special today or connected in a special way with something that you heard, don't keep it a secret. You can reach out and share directly with one of our staff at RedeemerMN.org leadership, or you can share this episode of the podcast across your own social media. We look forward to the opportunity to connect with you. Until next time, God bless you and have a wonderful day.